Welcome to another episode of The Discernible Interviews. Today is probably the first time I've ever been nervous to do an interview, and that's because this man is a bit of a hero of mine. He, he doesn't know this at all. This is the first time he's heard about this. Uh, but uh, John Anderson, the uh, former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, the great nation, has uh, taken to podcasting. He creates an incredible program called Conversations with John Anderson, and he joins me now. Thank you very much for joining me, John. Matt, it's lovely to be with you, and uh, it's an honour. Uh, honour is mine, my friend, because let me let me just start by... Uh, can I can I read this very glowing article of you from The Spectator? Uh, oh, goodness. <laughs> I think it's a really good way to start the conversation because today I'd love to talk to you about your career post-politics, um, your thoughts on where the world is going today and what you've gleaned from the many guests you've had. But let's start with this article. So Paul Collitz in The Spectator wrote after you lost the... Uh, the bid to run for uh, the Nationals in the Senate in the middle of 2021. He said, it is not remotely surprising that the, the Nationals of the 21st century would deny John Anderson. The Nationals always stood for two things, social conservatism and regional representation. Now they stand for woke politics and getting stuff for the Bush, a bastardized version of their original intent. So John Anderson stands for a national party that no longer exists. Uh, however, he ends the article in saying this rejection of uh, John Anderson by the Nationals is a significant marker of Australian politics, but perhaps this rejection is actually a victory of sorts because we should all be pleased that John Anderson lost. The battle he apparently wished to rejoin does not deserve him. John Anderson, go back to your higher, better profession. We need you there. They don't want you, nor do they deserve you. How, how much did you pay him to write that article? Can I say, the first time I'd ever heard of him was when somebody actually sent, I, I subscribed to The Spectator amongst other journals, uh, but I hadn't read it and someone sent it to me out of the blue. I was very surprised to read it. Uh, he's been incredibly kind to me. I, I'd love to buy him a coffee one day. He sounds like a, a very nice person, certainly very, very switched on. Uh, he, uh, I've read a couple of his articles since. Uh, this is a guy who knows what's going on. I gather he lives up near Lismore somewhere. Uh, and uh, uh, he certainly, uh, he writes very clearly, I must say that. Well, Joe, the reason why I start with that and why I said in the intro that I'm nervous to interview is because you do such a good job in your podcasting career. I'm wondering if you, what is the greatest thing you've done here? Do you see the conversations you're having now as equally important or as more important or less important than your job as the deputy PM of our country? They're very different. And no, I don't have any um, actual hands-on power of the sort that I had as uh, the deputy leader of the government at one point of time. Um, uh, it's roughly 20 years, for example, since uh, 9-11. Uh, and uh, at that time, I was actually acting prime minister. So I don't have those uh, influential roles to play anymore. However, the conversations are motivated by a very deep concern I have, which is that I'm deeply committed to good public policy, economic policy, defence policy, trade policy, health policy, good policy matters, education policy, whatever. Uh, but you can't get good policy uh, out of a bad debate. If a debate is not had, it's silenced or it's truncated, it's cut short if people can't answer questions. And here's the other one. 
if people confuse feeling for thinking so you don't get the facts on the table, you'll never get good public policy. Well, we're not getting a lot of good public policy today. So how if we just I don't understand politics for too long, because quite frankly, I think we're all sick of it. I'd rather talk about philosophy and some deeper issues, culture. But on the nationals thing, the fact that they rejected you, what does that tell us that they embraced this old guy, this other guy who was the you know former president of the Young Libs? They seems to have. He's not terrible, is he? But he's he's not focused on the same kind of depths of discussion that you're talking about. And overall, I think the rejection of you there is indicative of an overall rejection of society for the very things that you do in your podcast and I do on my podcast. Perhaps what we're doing is just not as palatable to the mainstream as it once was. Matt, I don't think it's right or appropriate or even wise for me to act as a commentator on the decision that the National Party Central Council made. There there were six candidates. Uh, They chose uh, the candidate that they chose. Uh, there has certainly been some interesting reaction uh, and, uh, around the place, uh, actually in some ways less reaction than I expected because, interestingly, it wasn't covered in a lot of the media. Mm. Uh, but um, I think the point is, one point I would make is this. I worry now that we've become an inward-looking nation and that our politicians are inward-looking at a time when we need to be outward-looking. And one of my critics said, oh, no, we don't have to go back to John Anderson. He's from the past. We've got to have somebody who looks to the future. Mm. Um, Hang on. I was about the future. I'm very worried about Australia's future. I can see the things that need addressing now in the same way that has been repeated down through history. It's often people who have lived a bit who can actually see what's coming. They've understood the past. They've got a clear, because they've lived through quite a bit of it, they've got an understanding of what might be coming at us. Uh, no less a figure than Churchill uh, mm. made the comment that if you want to understand the, fu- the, 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 pa- the, pre- the future, then you need to have a handle on the past. The further you want to see into the future, the further you need to be able to see into the past. Uh, and um, uh, to be blunt about it, I do notice that it's a lot of older Australians at the moment who have a very clear handle on the huge challenges that now confront us internally and externally, cultural economic, defence, supply chain security, the capacity to be self-reliant, those sorts of issues. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, I I will permit myself just one observation. The more people in the National Party who are prepared to talk up about these issues that affect all Australians, regardless of where you live, regional Australians are Australians first. People who live in Sydney or Melbourne are Australians first. They're not regional Australians first or Sydney occupiers first or Melbournians first. We are Australians together and we face some very serious challenges. They need a coordinated national approach and our federal leaders need to lead. That's what they're there for. Uh, It's about lifting your sights. It's not about, (laughs) frankly, endless social progressive arguments which simply seem to divide us and increase distrust and dislike and exacerbate tribalism. Uh, and, and nor is it about forever spending our children's money. It's about planning for the future. And nor is it about ignoring the fact that there are some real questions about whether there will be a place for Australia as a mid-sized, economically and democratically free country with the sort of global architecture that's beginning to emerge now in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Mm. 
Well, of course, the 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 only way you can you would know this obviously better than I would. The only way you can get anything done is with the support of the people in some fashion. So, to the second part yeah. of that that question, uh, is there a diminishing appetite? Do you think for what you and I do? I mean, obviously, we're finding our home in our small part of the internet, but the mainstream conversation seems to be going after those socially progressive uh, arguments that you mentioned. Uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I think there's 70% of Australians in the middle, mm. if you like, watching the elites shout at one another over the tops of the people in the middle mm. are concerned. Uh, they would like a deeper and more serious debate. They would like the challenges the nation faces to be properly confronted. Having said that, I think there's, in some areas, a real complacency. So, for example, uh, my understanding is the research shows that Australians know that COVID has blown the economy off course. Mm. We've built up very big debts. A lot of small businesses are very challenged or have failed. Employment might be hard to gather, gather up again uh, to really re, you know, drive, to, to really get rolling into the future. A lot of jobs may disappear and not come back particularly in hospitality, tourism and what have you. Um, and people want a, a plan back to economic strength. That's good. Uh, on the other hand, I do think, again, the research suggests that people think, oh, the government will worry about the international scene. Uh, I actually think we ought to all be pressing the government to take whatever action is necessary. We have, just as by way of illustration, I understand spent over $300 billion on the response to COVID. Uh, we're spending over the next several years, $270 billion extra on defence preparedness. I actually think we need to do a lot more. And I think the people in the middle ought to be more switched on to this, to be really frank. So if you're a middle Australian, can I say to you, you ought to be getting onto your federal member. You ought to be saying, I want to know this country's secure, that it's hardened that it's ready to cope in a dangerously changing world. Is there an appetite for those things? Yes, I think there is, quite frankly. And that's why you're seeing actually a proliferation of, um, of, of long-form interviews. Uh, and uh, I've been very surprised by the impact that uh, my modest attempts in this area uh, seem to have created uh, everywhere I go, in the most extraordinary places, from people who you would not think were very interested in current affairs around this country, I'm pulled up by somebody who want to say, I saw your conversation with, or I thought that was a really important point, and off I go. So when you have the this work you're doing with your channel, how, how much, I've always wondered how much of it has been the celebrity effect, where they just want to see what such a well-known person is, is doing and saying and thinking, and how much, it, feedback you're getting where what you've just described people are deeply engaged with what you're doing because i i wonder sometimes whether a no-name doing what you're doing could reach the same success or whether it's because of your profile beforehand i don't know that i'm the right one to answer that i'd been out of the game for quite a while before i started doing them uh, but uh i think that perhaps uh, it's had a bit to do with some of the people who have been kind enough to talk to me. I, I think that helps, frankly. People want to hear, for example, young people want to hear what Jordan Peterson has to say. Very interesting that um, 
And I'm interested that some progressives in this country try to decry Jordan Peterson. They're overlooking the fact that he's talking common sense in a way that is incredibly appealing to a huge slab of young people, young men in particular. That should tell us something. We ought to be modest enough to say, what is going on here? Um, and, uh, of course, uh, uh, we, I, I, I launched with him a little over three years ago. Oh, that was uh, your launch guest. It was. It wasn't actually the first one I recorded. I had several in the in the pack, so to speak, beforehand. Uh, but I launched with that because he was out here in Australia at the time yes. uh, and was creating a lot of interest. And, of course, I was absolutely staggered when we put it up. And we just watched the numbers rolling over and over and over. And it was really quite amazing. Uh, and I happened to like some of his messages, not least of all the fact that he plainly warns that we should not think that an empathy culture, a victimhood sort of culture, will solve our problems. It won't. It's not solving anybody's problems as far as I can see. It's just uh, locking victims into victimhood and painting anyone who's not a victim, if there's anyone left who's not a victim, as a victim maker or an oppressor. Now, there are real victims. Let me say that. There are people who we really need to work with to help them find a way through because of the circumstances that have hit them. But all sorts of people claim victimhood status today who really have, in my view, no right to claim victimhood status. And the worst of it is that they then will you know, protest that they've been oppressed and made a victim by people who are often completely innocent of that. And I've seen halls full of younger men in particular saying, I'm not setting out to make people victims. I'm not trying to be uh, a low life. I, I don't know what you mean when you say my masculinity is toxic. I, I'm not setting out to be toxic. You know, uh, what's the idea of saying I'm toxic simply because I'm male? Um, and uh, when the New York Times, which is, of course, a very, very progressive newspaper, describes him as the world's number one public intellectual, yeah. then you should, the naysayers should say, well, how does this come about? Hadn't we better understand what he's saying? Isn't it insulting to the people who have made him the world's number one intellectual to say, oh, no, you don't know what you're talking about. You're listening to the wrong person before you've understood what it is he's saying. So this business of engaging with ideas, thinking them through, being prompted and challenged and prompted, if you like, uh, to uh, use this and not simply respond with this, use the head, not just the heart, is really important. As I said earlier, you can't get good public policy without a proper debate. You'll never have a proper debate if you're not talking about facts and reality, uh, and instead you're confusing feeling with thinking. Well, at the end of the day, they can't ignore numbers and eyeballs, and that's what's happening with Jordan Peterson. And I would argue it's what's happening with you. You've got uh, something like 300,000 people subscribed to your YouTube channel. Is that some, when you started, was that a, just a fresh start channel and you've, you've, you've just built it in this uh, quest to have deeper conversations? Is that just been I think you're being a, a bit kind. I don't think we're quite 300,000, but for Australian standards, yes, we've, we've got quite substantial numbers. No, it started from nothing. And it's slowly built over years. We've we've three years, a bit over three years. We've had I think around fourteen million YouTube downloads plus podcasts. Australians tend to listen to podcasts a lot, uh, and in fact, um, Jordan Peterson himself 
the very first interview, I've often told this story, I thought it was a bit long and I said, we'll cut it back. He said, no, 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 don't cut it back. He said, young people love content. Yes. They may not read books as much as we did in our generation, but they love content. If the quality's there, they'll listen to it all. And we soon learned that that was absolutely right. As long as there's some meat in it, uh, they'll listen up to three hours at a session. Uh, and I found that extremely interesting. Uh, people are just as interested in ideas. It's just that they're... It's hard to gain access to them, which is why so many people now go into, you know, social media, I suppose. But then you've got to be very careful there that you're finding quality commentators yes. uh, who are thinking, not just feeling, to go back to what I said a minute ago. Do, do you know what your breakdown is in terms of Australian viewers versus international viewers? Uh, we do have a very substantial number of um, American and English and a smattering from around the rest of the world. I don't have a current breakup, no. I, don't. I do know that Australians tend to listen to them in podcast form more than our American and English uh, subscribers and friends who, who tend to uh, follow the videos. Okay, the reason why I'm asking these questions to learn about your journey and your platform growth is because I'm curious it's a litmus test to tell me where the Australian culture is at. And you see Dave Rubin and Joe Rogan and, and others uh, in, in the UK who are catching a lot of momentum. But the idea of an Australian platform that you, you've got is catching a lot. And at, we're a smaller version, but again, we're catching a lot of, of fire over the last 12 months, a lot of growth. I'm curious where Austra the Australian psyche and way of thinking sits in the world, especially Maybe you could speak to the difference between the US and Australia because you seem to speak into a lot of the US uh, guests and audiences. In, a, in America, of course, and I think I saw this in one of your podcasts, they're more partisan. And in Australia, we're much more, you know, got this big swinging 70% in the center. And of course, we value fairness over freedom as they value freedom. But where do you see Australians on the world stage in the way that they think, the way they engage with these, these big issues? And are we just the same as the US, but five years behind, as we've always been, five, 10 years behind? Or are we a unique animal here that requires a unique approach? Uh, every culture is different. Uh, every culture has a different, slightly different history. So America's a democracy, Britain's a democracy, we're a democracy, but in many ways, we're all a little bit different. America had to fight for freedom originally, so did Britain to establish freedom. We didn't. Uh, one way or another. There was no real bloodshed shed uh, to secure freedom in Australia. We've been prepared to go to the war to defend freedom. That's different. But it hasn't shaped us in a way that the American founding fathers had to work through a myriad of passionately held but very different views on what America should look like, for example, and still plays out today. America's always been a polarised society, um, north versus south, the most simple, now it's... East and West Coast versus centre, so to speak. You get the, yes. these great divisions that are much more noticeable, I think, in America than they are here. Um, I, I, I'll stick my neck out and say that I think it's been very comfortable for Australia Australians for a very long time yeah. and that perhaps we're not as interested in the contest of ideas. We're a bit culturally apathetic uh compared to the americans and i think that's regrettable and i don't obviously want to offend my viewers because i think and listeners because i think in many ways they are people who by definition 
are wanting to engage in the battle of ideas. There's a bit of an Australian attitude that says, oh, that's all for academics or what have you, but it's not. There's no such thing as a society that is not the product of great ideas, whether they were good great ideas or bad great ideas, uh, great ideas or even great great ideas. It's ideas that shape your culture and the environment in which you live in, and it's only altered by ideas, often led by surprisingly few people, as an anthropologist down through the ages have always noted. You know, it doesn't take many people. A small group can change the way a society goes about it. Indeed, that's how societies have always changed. I think that might have been Margaret Mead who made that observation in general terms. Um, and I think it's absolutely true. Uh, but maybe in Australia we ought to be a little more willing to engage in the cultural, I don't want to call it wars, mm. but the battle for ideas, put it that way. They are important. They matter, uh, particularly at a challenging time like this. We do face big internal challenges and big external challenges. The world is not static. It's moving very rapidly, and we need to be aware of how it's moving uh, and the changes we can embrace and the changes we want to resist the changes that are benign and we, the ones we can let through to the keeper. So, John, how do you explain if, if Australia's been a bit apathetic or a bit um, comfortable, a bit lucky, shall we say? I've always hated that saying, the lucky country, because there's just no responsibility in there. Uh, how have we managed to do so well for so long if we haven't been involved in these contestations of ideas? Oh, I think there's a number of reasons. Lee Kuan Yew always said that countries that were well endowed with natural resources found it very easy to become prosperous without having to be especially ingenious or hardworking. Right. Now, that was a pretty tough view, but I would add to that. I think Australian people were very politically stable. We've, you know, despite the cynicism, we're an old democracy and we've been well led, broadly speaking, for yeah. most of our life as a nation. Yeah. Um, we are fortunate with natural resources, but we also have an educated populace uh, and an innovative one, much more innovative than people realise. Uh, and so I think those things have all combined together to help us become a very prosperous nation. I mean, it's extraordinary. I think we have the same sized economy as Russia, which you know, has many times our population, um, number 12 or 13 in the world, I think we sort of alternate with Russia. That's an extraordinary thing for 25 or 26 million people. Uh, but I would stress you don't get there by accident and you can fall off the perch. There's no such thing as a guaranteed free ride into the future. Um, maybe it's helpful to think of us living in a garden in a jungle. Most of human history, most of the societies and forms of government that people have lived down, under, down through the ages are more like a jungle, chaotic and dangerous and uncertain. And um, uh, you, don't, you never know how long you're going to survive. And they've been marked really by tribalism, uh, which we might now call identity politics, where I identify with groups who are like me and believe in the things that I believe in and everybody else is wrong. Whereas democracy was all about loving your neighbour and going, the, you know, the golden rule, doing under them as you'd have them do under yourself, do no harm, the modest version of it at least. Um, now it's, uh, we're becoming very dog-eat-dog, -dog, and that, that really does worry me. 
And so to go back to the garden analogy, the garden takes careful tending. Uh, you know, we need to preserve carefully the rule of law, the basic freedoms of speech, of association, of conscience, uh, the right to uh, uh, own private property, those core freedoms that really all belong together as a package. You can't break them down and say, well, I'll have this one, but I won't have that one anymore. Uh, they go together. They're the marks of a civilised society, of a garden in the jungle. And I fear that identity politics is seeing us allow the weeds to grow in the garden and it's encouraging the jungle to, to encroach again uh, and place the garden at risk. But, but again, if, if we talk about what you, the way you describe Australia, there's a sense of, uh, you know, we've had good resources, we've been very innovative and so on. We haven't been particularly cognizant or or um, taking much action in defense of what you're, you're talking about, tending this garden. And so I'm wondering if, I mean, I fear that maybe we don't need to fight the same contest. I can't believe I'm saying this. The contest of ideas that the Americans are fighting. Maybe we could succeed purely by focusing on our natural resources, our well position, our luckiness, our innovation, and just roll along our happily happily roll along on our merry way do we really need to get into the weeds or can we just luck our way forward yes we do yes we do you have to tend the garden uh you know australia from the early 70s through i would argue until the mid 90s australia languished very badly our living standards started to fall behind oh. unemployment was high a lot of young people couldn't get a start Debt was exploding, taxes were going up. And then the reforms, and to be fair, to be bipartisan about it, and Paul Kelly talks about 25 years of exceptionalism, really, starting with the Hawke government and ending in a, you know, about the time that um, uh, the coalition that I was part of lost office. Mm -hmm. And then we had the revolving door leadership and a lot of instability for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, during that period, you saw a lot of reforms that were anything but people being sort of laid back and laissez-faire and not entering into the contest of big ideas. Uh, and we saw unemployment with a four in front of it again when people didn't think it had ever happened. In fact, at one stage, I think we saw a three in front of it briefly. Uh, we uh, uh, Real living standards started to rise. Australia, you know, became, uh, as it was described in America at one stage by a very prominent newspaper, a class act. Oh. And I do think these things matter. And, I mean, another area, an obvious one, where, where we ought to be thoroughly alarmed is by all of the accumulating, rapidly accumulating evidence that our education system, despite the vast sums of money that we've pumped into it, yes. is not really delivering for our children. Yes. Too many of our children are leaving schools in, <laughs> literally at one end, functionally illiterate not able to take their full place in a modern, sophisticated uh, society that requires a great deal of learning if you're to maximise your opportunities. There's just one simple example of why a laid-back approach that says, uh, you know, we'll just dig it up and export it won't work. Right, okay. Beyond that, there's a reality that the world doesn't owe us a living. And if you look at the great defence challenges since Australia became a nation, we were absolutely ready for the First World War. Just astonishing how ready this little country was. 
uh, we, we even had a what was called a tier two navy, you know, one of the most sophisticated in the world. It even had a newfangled thing called submarines, two of them. Yeah. And there were another four meant to come but didn't arrive before the war. And it took five years. We, we, there's trouble brewing. We need to do something about it. We want a navy. It arrived five years later in time to secure our homeland during the First World War. We talk about Anzac Day, rightly celebrate all that it signified about our courage and you know, our skills and our capabilities. We forget that the preparedness meant that we could play a constructive role because we were able to secure our homeland. Second World War, no, we were asleep at the wheel in the 30s and we nearly paid a, well, we paid a big price very nearly much worse because we weren't prepared. Cold War, we were ready. Now, it didn't happen, partly because we were ready, partly because Chinese, uh, Russian communism collapsed. This time around, the world now, there's trouble spots everywhere. And on some fronts, we've been alert, but not on enough. A country that takes 25 years from deciding we need 12 state-of-the-art submarines to taking delivery of the first one, even if they even if they were the right submarines, and there's a big debate about that, that's not really reacting to the world around you in a realistic and timely way that says, I believe in my country and in my children and my grandchildren. So so how this is fascinating me because on the one hand, I feel like you're talking about we're in a little bit of a stagnation in terms of the contest of ideas, but then you're also talking about very... Uh, manifest physical things like our defense preparedness and our place on the world stage do you see them as separate things or combined things and are we more prepared for one are, are we more stagnated in one than the other uh, they're definitely related if we understand the importance of ideas if we understand the importance of evidence of facts of changing realities then we will be thinking actively and urgently about how to make sure we secure our place under the sun in the face of the emerging challenges. And the Australian people do expect that of their governments. They've expected a very high level of performance from their governments during COVID. Mm. You know, they, they want to know their governments are prepared for whatever eventualities come. And uh, uh, we actually were relatively, compared to a lot of other countries, prepared. But most Australians would say we could have done even better. So you're not just talking about defence. You're talking about like COVID, you're talking about everything. Just the challenges in the world today. Uh, we've got a massive debate about emissions, uh, and um, uh, and yet uh, in that you don't see a lot of clear thinking. It's a global problem. Some of the solutions that are being put forward at the moment, in my view, right across the Western world, including in Australia, will make the global problem worse, not better. We need to be thinking more clearly and more honestly. We need to understand that Australia can probably provide technology, for example, but there's almost minuscule amount we could do. We could stop all Australian emissions now. And this idea that we could have stopped the bushfires, devastating and terrible as they've been, mm. um, if Australian governments have taken more action, the reality is that Australia could have had zero emissions for the last 250 years yep. and the global because the global problem, uh, emissions, if it's been in some way responsible for those bushfires, would have seen that they'd have been exactly the same. And yet night after night we hear people in quite high positions saying, oh, the bushfires are because the Australian governments haven't taken enough action. Mm. 
note my words. So one thing to say the Australian government should take more action, but to imply that if they'd taken action, these things wouldn't have happened. It's not honest. We've got to think clearly. So we go to um, some sort of badly designed policies in Australia, we just end up doing what the Europeans do. We send our own industries offshore to places where standards are lower, the emissions are higher, and then we bring them back to Australia. I'm just simply illustrating that muddied thinking, poor rhetoric, emotion, not calm reason mm. can produce some very undesirable outcomes if you're not careful. I think I'm starting to understand how you're thinking about it and why you, you want to see clear thinking leading into good policy. Where do you see us on that front in terms of maybe like a J-curve? Are we, are we on the descent in terms of the way we're handling ourselves and how far further down will we go before we turn around? Oh, I think we're definitely, uh, well, let me, let me consider that for a moment. I think in many ways, Australians are now recognising just how difficult the world is. So in that sense, the trajectory is good. We're starting to say that, you know, we're in challenging times. We've got to face up. People are saying, you know, we need to do things like fix our supply chain security. I'm a farmer. Yeah. We, we use copious quantities of diesel to feed you, and we will for at least the next 15 years. Right. We're meant to have 90 days storage of diesel and petrol in Australia. We've got around 20 to 25 days. Why? What, Minor interruption to shipping, and we're not going to be able to grow and distribute your food. Well, that's why, supply why? chain security. So Where's yeah, the urgency? What, what you just said, 90 days, we've only got 20. We're not securing our supply chains. Is that a political thing? What's going on? I wish I knew. Because oh, okay. I, uh, I, I mix in farming circles, and farmers are very aware of it. Uh, and I think they are saying, what's the national complacency? Why haven't we done more about this? We've spent a lot of money securing our remaining refining capacity, but you've got to have crude to put in them. And some stored product would be a good idea. It wouldn't take much of a disruption to our shipping to grind the whole economy to a standstill and cripple not only our defence forces, by the way, mm. but even our ability to grow our crops. Uh, and and, and I'm th that's an example of a complacency. No, the trajectory is good because people are starting to sense, hey, hang on, we need to be a bit more urgent about this, but it's it's not urgent enough in my view. Okay. Hey, have you taken the time out to watch Clarkson's Farm on Am on Amazon? Yes, Jeremy no, Clarkson. No, <laughs> it's. Uh, he, I'm aware he, of it, and you're uh, okay. So you know about it. He's, he's a great he's, character, and I, I'm a, I'm a car nut. I'm a complete tragic motor car. So I always read uh, what he has to say about motor cars. Well, then I think you'd very much enjoy his his farming show, being a farmer as well. Uh, it just really highlighted to me how much we rely on. on I don't on cart farms. my sheep around in a Range Rover. Can I just say that, Matt? I don't have a Range Rover. <laughs> Actually, come to that, I don't have sheep either. <laughs> I was going to ask you how accurate Clarkson's farm was. Obviously, not very. I don't. Well, for Australia, it's a bit different, isn't it? Hey, um, the, the the whole idea of uh, Australia running out of petrol is something <laughs> running out of crude oil is something that i just don't think this this discussion that i'm having with is just so far off what my peers are thinking about this this really concerns me i'm in 35 i don't know what you are 50 years old but it's i i'm wondering how do we get 
what you started this interview with, which is the 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 old the gray heads, you know, the experience and, and the approach there. How do we get that connected with my age bracket as we rise into power over the next twenty years? Uh, that's a good question. That's partly uh, the reason that I do what I do do, to be honest, Matt. Uh, yeah. And I know because they contact me, that I've got a surprising number of younger people who are interested, some really fine young Australians who are passionate mm. about stepping up. Uh, and uh, I always counted a great privilege to meet and yarn and have a cup of coffee and try to do what I can to encourage them to stay, you know, to sort of hang in there. You know, Churchill wrote a fascinating book, um, uh, I've forgotten what it's called now, having called it a fascinating book, um, about the interwar period, First to Second World War. Yes. And he made the point there that politicians in particular were very keen not to disabuse people of the idea that everything was under control. Right. And he was the odd man out. He was even, even Lord Reith at the BBC tried to cancel a lot of what Churchill said. He thought he was too alarmist. Well, we now know that he was right to warn people and if Britain had sat up and paid attention earlier, they might have avoided a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. But I have never forgotten my history teacher telling me when I was young that one of the things that made the disaster of 1939-45 come along, you know, one of the things that sort of kicked it along was a major debate that was very widely publicised in Oxford. Now, you know, they were students, young people, uh, that uh, that this house would not fight for king and country. You know, we would not be prepared to go to war, in other words. And it was widely interpreted in Germany in particular, uh, and then even by the Japanese in different ways, I think, as a sign that the West no longer believed in itself. You know, um, it's important. It is really important at the moment, I think, that young people recognise these are challenging times. I'll give you another reason, and I have a lot of sympathy for young people here. In my view, since the great financial crisis of 2007, 8, 9, now massively exacerbated by COVID, mm -hmm. poor economic management and a refusal to get economic houses in order, by which I mean tackling debt. We did that in government. We paid mm -hmm. off debt. Mm -hmm has meant that governments have gone looking for inflation. People, they, they're not prepared to stick their necks out and say we've got to impose financial discipline and wind back all the debts we've spent saving industries and jobs during the financial meltdown and now COVID. That's too painful. People have no stomach for tough decisions. Mm. Maybe there's some truth in that. That in itself, you could write a thesis on it. But on the other hand, what they'll say is, well, we'll try and create inflation and that'll devalue the debts, make them smaller in real terms. Mm. So they pumped all sorts of ingenious ways. They pumped money into economies right around the West. We've done it in Australia, cheap money, printing money, buying government, government central banks, buying bonds, et cetera, et cetera, without going into the technicalities of it. So money flooding everywhere. It's created inflation, which is what it normally does if you try and mm. pump too much money into a system, but it's been in assets. In flat, housing prices. Wages have, been, wages have been flat, not lining, and asset prices have been going through the roof. US equity markets, record levels. Oh, equity, okay. Housing prices in Australia are making it impossible for young people. Um, 
The answer is not more socialism yeah. of the sort that seemed to be attractive to many young people in Britain and in America. It'll only make the problem worse. The answer is good economic management, tough, thoughtful, painstakingly constructed and enacted economic reforms. And yet the last major economic reforms in Australia now were 20 years old. GST. They so really look, are. They're that long ago. How do you, how do you explain Joe Hockey's uh, rough year, shall we say? How do you explain that? The public roundly rejected it in 2014 or whenever it was. Well, I think that is part of the problem. Um, and, you know, I, it's a good question. Uh, I don't have a neat answer. In some ways, maybe it was too sudden and maybe it was not quite as fair as it needed to be. Uh, in some ways, perhaps it needed a better road show. You can mount all of those arguments. Mm, okay. uh, but Australia would be, in my view, in better shape if we'd started to pay back the GFC debt more. Mm. Mind you, even now, even after, as we head towards a trillion dollars of public sector debt. And people say, oh, that doesn't matter. That doesn't affect me. That's the government. No, it's not. It's governments don't have money. Yeah. And governments don't have debts, actually, in a way. Only the people do. The yeah. sum total. Australia's a sum total that people make it up. So yeah. you pay for it in reduced living opportunities uh, standards, in reduced job opportunities, in higher taxes, in Ultimately, one day, probably, if we're not careful, higher interest rates, which will be devastating. So th this is the problem. We need to be aware that we've become so soft that we won't take the decisions that are in our own real interests. I, I look back on... Otherwise, they'll be forced on us. Remember the Oxford story. Those What's same that? young men were involved in a horrendous war only five or six years later. Oh, of course. And they just said that we would not fight for King Country. Okay. Mm. So of course, I'm hoping when push came to shove, the great bulk of them stepped up. And what Britain did during the Second World War was amazing. They had the courage. They Germany didn't declare war on them. They declared war on Germany. They were there on day one. They were there at the end. But they paid a terrible price. And the, and the death toll was appalling. Civilians as well as armed people. It was a terrible price to pay for not recognising the terrible ideas that were emerging across the continent and coming up with powerful ideas and action to match those terrible ideas and actions. Well, I do wonder whether we will rise to the occasion ourselves because the idea of, to be honest with you, the idea of a GST, the, the next thing, getting up and getting past, I just think that is absolutely impossible. I cannot see my generation stomaching something like that. We just don't think that far ahead. No, stop messing with my life. Leave me alone is all I hear. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I can only encourage you, you plainly believe that we do, you plainly believe we need to tackle these things and you're doing your bit. No one can ask any more of you. Can I, uh, on that, um, depressing note can i ask you how you think our response to COVID is going uh and and obviously you know there's people are arguing about the, the 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 surface stuff is one thing but i really want to get to the the ethics beneath it because i think there's an argument that we haven't had yet about whether what we're doing 
is morally right? And how will we look back upon this in five, 10, 50 years time in the history books? Yeah, I don't want to be cleverer than I am on this. Uh, in many ways, we've been incredibly fortunate and governments provided have combined together well to help us avoid some of the truly horrendous things that have happened in other countries. Uh, we've been mugged by Delta along the way. And we should have known there'd be mutant versions of it mm. in some ways more easily spread across a wider age group, possibly less deadly. I don't know. Um, but it has changed the reality. I think I would say, firstly, that we've been able to cope financially because despite the big spending during the, the financial problems from 07, 08, 09 on, Australia's public finances were still in good order. We still stood on the shoulders of those reforming governments from 1983 to 2007. Um, and, you know, to be fair to the current government, they were getting our finances back into order. We were going to have the first surplus for a long time. Now, having said that, though, look, what happened was that we were told that we needed to do things like lockdown and state barriers being put up and what have you to flatten the curve so that our hospitals could cope. It morphed into a de facto elimination policy. Yeah. And uh, Medico from Melbourne had a pretty good go at me the other day for questioning that, but I never thought mm -hmm. that was realistic. Mm -hmm. I can, cannot see how a country is addicted to traveling and to imported goods and shipping and aviation and all that sort of, could ever cope, cut itself off from the world. I've never believed that, I honestly haven't, that elimination would be entirely possible. Uh, and I think that helped build a complacency around vaccination. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you had what I regard as a pretty irresponsible campaign, including in the media, mm -hmm. about AstraZeneca. Uh, and I'm over 60, so it was what was offered to me, but I didn't hesitate to have it. Felt a bit like I had flu for a while the next day, and that was it. Uh, but, you know, it's now beginning to emerge that it has certain pluses that have been overlooked. We don't know about the long-term impacts of any of these um, uh, vaccinations. Just, I'm just deeply thankful to the people who got together so quickly around the world and produced vaccinations. Mm -hmm. And I do see it as the only pathway out of this. I think that's really important because we can't stay where we are. But there are other costs which the media has not been prepared to fairly point to. One I've touched on earlier, the explosion of debt and what it's going to mean for people of your generation and younger, it's a real problem. It's not going to go away. Uh, we have a terrific health system in Australia. It costs a lot of money to have a good health system. Mm. Um, we um, have failed to take account, I think, of the impact uh, of delayed identification, for example, of cancers and treatment mm. of cancer and the uh, deaths that have resulted from those sorts of things. We've failed to take account properly of the mental health issues for people being locked up because I think our lockdowns, I think it's fair to say, have been more extensive, longer and more severe than anybody else's in the world. Mm -hmm. So, John, when you say, because just this idea of, of ethics that I've been exploring lately on my channel, uh, when people say vaccinations are the only path out, a necessary part of that that strategy is going to be segregation, vaccine passports, advantages for those who are vaccinated and then disadvantages for those who are not. From a, a word I learned this week, deontological ethics, the idea of 
you can't just measure the consequences of an action, but the action in itself needs to be morally ethical. How can we simply say the ends justify the means? If, if that means we need to have a form of a low-level medical apartheid where if you haven't been vaccinated, you can't go to Coles, you must do click and collect. These are inevitabilities throughout this, this idea of the only way out is through vaccinations. So I'm at this impasse where I, I don't see how we can ethically ethically do this but no one's talking about this everyone's just saying just get vaxxed and we'll be fine yeah i hear what you're saying and i recognize the difficulties and any free society will ultimately allow for conscientious objection if somebody really has an objection that's what hacksaw ridge was about right um uh, mel gibson made the film hacksaw ridge because it demonstrates that in the darkest days of the Second World War, when the Allies didn't even know that they would survive, they still allowed people who had a genuine conscientious objection to bearing arms uh, to be excused. They did ask them to do other duties. Mm. And it's worth remembering, for example, that during the Second World War in London, you couldn't conscientiously object to having your lights on at night. Oh, you know, your window's covered over during the blitz. You have to do it for the sake of everyone else. Now, to strike a balance between those two, I absolutely believe that you must be enabled to conscientiously object. However, like vaccinations for just about everything else, whether it's polio, I mean, I'm old enough to remember people crippled by polio, just an utterly dreadful thing. Um, Endless other diseases that we've now beaten you need a high proportion of people to be prepared to take it on. And I think keeping in mind that I'd always want to say, if you really don't want to have one, then that's okay, but you may have to miss out on some things. The reality is that I don't see airlines, for example, allowing people to travel freely unless they can give some clear evidence uh, of vaccination. Mm. I don't think people will want to travel on airlines until they feel that the other people on the aeroplane have been vaccinated, to use one example. So I don't pretend it's easy, Matt. I genuinely don't. And I do think we must allow for conscientious objection. Uh, But I also think it's just not real world to think that you're going to be able to go to your cafe. Unless we get to the point, say, I understand a friend of mine in Germany, so don't quote me on its absolute accuracy, but they were saying that you can now get tested so quickly in Germany that if you want to go and have a coffee with friends, you simply get tested. So the issue is yeah. not whether you've been vaccinated. Yeah. It's whether or not you can show on the spot that you don't have COVID. Yeah, that's a great uh, solution. That might be yeah. a, a solution, at least in part. Well, so can- I don't want to make light of it. It's hard, but I also don't want to be naive about it. There are a whole heap of things where your fellow Australians just won't, will, will not want to know about you being there, whether it's in a restaurant or flying on an aeroplane unless you've been vaccinated, as I see it at this point in time. Okay. So that's the most common uh, thing that I, I hear as well, is is that, you know, consequentially, ethically, that's the, the con- it's the herd, you know, the group, you, you owe it to your fellow Australians. I'm, I'm just a bit confused why we don't apply the same standards to, for example, the influenza vaccine. For some reason, I understand the flu doesn't kill as many people and all that. I get that. But we... Ethically speaking, we'd feel funny about forcing people to take the flu vaccine in 2019, but we feel okay about coercing, effectively, someone to take 
the COVID-19 vaccine. And so, you know, I don't, we don't need to talk about the numbers and all that. That's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the ethics of what kind of society are we creating? Because it sounds like that's, you know, you, you think it's acceptable. It's like the, the, the blitz cover your, your curtains. That scares uh, me. I'm, I'm always saying, please, I would always say you must have the right to object and not do it if you say choose uh, in relation to COVID. Right. Uh, but I think I am saying that I think we've got to be realistic and say that just as, uh, for example, I can't remember what rate of inoculation you had to have to beat polio, but it was pretty high. But you we're know, making I mean, comparisons to polio, which is, you know, I agree, and travel. I'd probably agree with travel. I'm more concerned about, I'm in Victoria. Uh, you're in regional New South Wales, right? Hmm. So at the moment in Metro New South Wales, you can't go to work if you work on a construction site and you're from one of the affected LGAs unless you can show vaccination. And Dan Andrews down here is talking about we will only have a vaccinated economy, so you won't be able to participate in that economy unless you're double vaccinated. Am I not to labour the point, but am I not? Um, am I missing something here? I feel I feel I see a big human rights issue here that, in my mind, usurps what you're saying which is we need to be practical and reasonable. We can't tell people you can't go to church uh, because you're not vaccinated. Like that's not only unethical, that's unbiblical. We, we've got to figure out a way of doing better than vaccinations our only way out. Well, uh, I think it, it, I have to be say I have to say I think it's the only realistic way that we can open things up in a reasonably quick order unless we can get very, very rapid testing. And if people don't want to be vaccinated, then they, they will have to, I guess, adapt their lifestyle and potentially, it pains me to say it, but even their jobs around that. Mm. I think a great deal will depend on, you know, like the Blitz, it came to an end one day and people got their freedoms back. Mm. It's worth remembering that they what voted Churchill it? out. He'd help win the war for them, but they said it's over now. We can see victory. We want to turn our attention to rebuilding our own lives. And so to some extent, I think these issues around compromising freedoms in the broader interest, which is what you do in a democracy. You give up mm. certain rights mm. uh, in acknowledgement of other people's interests. Mm -hmm. uh, and at times in a democracy, you might be asked to give up more of them. A big part of the issue to my way of thinking is what then happens when the crisis passes? Do you get your freedoms back? That, I think, is a really important point. You know, so, will governments surrender the powers they've taken on themselves? And will, if they don't, people vote accordingly at the, um, at the box? Now, we do know that people's attitudes have changed. Uh, people are now saying overwhelmingly in the polls that we accept that we're going to have to live with COVID. You can't eliminate it. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. You know, you've just asked the question for me is, is will governments see this as a temporary measure, the abridgment of, of freedoms, and in my opinion, some cases rights. Uh, you've been in the bowels of government and people always say the governments will never give you back powers that they take, so don't let them take any, you know, the typical libertarian US line. How true is that? How, how? What do you think governments will do, state and federally, with these things that they've taken away? How hard will it be to get back our freedoms? 
power is corrupting, to quote Lord Acton, and it's mm. addictive, uh, and it's very hard for people to give up. Uh, I was part of a government that actually did try to wind back the size of government and its intrusiveness in people's lives. We actually did. We sought to simplify and deregulate uh, workplaces and tried, tried sincerely to build cooperative models rather than mm. regulated ones where there's more and more to argue over so that mm. people would identify their mutual best way forward. And a lot of, mm. a lot of Australian workplaces did so. There always mm. people who do the wrong thing, poison for everybody else. Um, but we also, of course, were very economically active, uh, winding back the size and intrusiveness of government in an economic sense. That's unusual. Uh, what will happen in the future in Australia? I just hope the Australian people, and you've talked about how your age sort of doesn't want to be bothered. Well, I, I hope there are plenty of people of your age who do want to be bothered mm. and do recognise that these things are important because in the end, Governments in a democracy should be a function of the will of the people. We should not be a function of governments. So the signs are variable. Uh, I think, to be fair, that the Premier of New South Wales is doing her level best mm. to try and give people their freedoms back, even though mm. there have been some very tough measures taken and some interesting things said by health officials in New South Wales. Mm. My reading of it is that um, she does not believe in a nanny state. Uh, there are certain other premiers around the place who I think uh, love control and will find it very hard to give up. And are you saying that the only way we're going to get them to give it up is to take it back you know, at the ballot box or what have you, you know, vote them out? Well, you know, there are, there are ways of sending messages in Australia. Using quality polling in quality ways. Yeah is valuable and the polling at the moment is showing that people are accepting that we're going to have to live with this, yes. that they want the lockdowns to end, they've had enough of them, yeah. uh, and we hope they will vote that way. Right. Uh, if people do not, if politicians don't read the tea leaves, the tea leaves being quality research, quality data, uh, it's important that they respond. I'm not saying that politicians should always respond simply to the polls. Yeah. Not saying that for a moment. But I am saying they should read the will of the people. Broadly speaking, that 70% we talked about a moment ago, broadly speaking, I think when they sit down and think about it, they get it right. right. I have less confidence in the extremes at either end. So Particularly you... elites who so dominate our media and academia today. Yes. Uh, you know, I often think, uh, as George Orwell, the author of 1984 put it, there's a lot of ideas out there that are so stupid, only an intellectual would ever put them forward. <laughs> no sensible man in the street would believe them for a moment. So when you mentioned some premiers might be more addicted to power, I mean, I obviously, uh, you know, you've got um, Mark McGowan and, and uh, Dan Andrews might be the poster child for that. Can I ask your experience of power? You mentioned earlier that, you know, you made the admission that power is corrupting. You were in a very powerful position in government. What was your brush with that temptation in terms of how did you identify it, feel it, see it, and avoid it? And why do these other premiers not? Why do some people embrace it? Well, I, I don't know that I can really answer that. I never became addicted to political life, and I was always very wary of power. 
and its ability to sway me, make me somebody that I didn't want to be. Yeah. Uh, I'm not claiming to be some sort of hero. It's just, it's just the way I'm wired. I'm very, very wary of power. I've, I've always been interested in history. I've always been a reader. I've always been very conscious of how the wisdom down through the ages warns about the destructive influence of power. Yes. Those on the receiving end of power, those exercising it. I remember at university in the government course at the University of Sydney in the 1970s, having the concept of lifeboat ethics, in inverted commas, right. put to us by a lecturer. I don't remember the lecturer. And the idea of lifeboat ethics was just to show that environmental catastrophism is not new. Is that there were far too many of us on the planet and we needed to cut our numbers. Now, I remember thinking to myself, so, okay, you're out there in a lifeboat. Uh, Who's the greater uh, or the, the most to be pitied? The person who's thrown overboard and made to be drown, and drowned or the person who exercises the power of life and death over, right. over their fellow human beings? Uh, you can live because I like you and you'll die because I don't like the colour of your eyes. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, from a personal point of view, I've, I've seen it become addictive. I've seen people resist it and I've seen people give way to it. Uh, and I can only say the Australian people are very good at reading hubris, so they usually pick it up and vote people who have got uh, in front of themselves out. Um, sometimes all I can say is that they ought to be more forgiving of those whose motivations are genuine. We ought to be more generous about the people whose integrity is beyond question and who are plainly well-motivated and thinking things through clearly. They ought to be perhaps a little quicker in passing judgment uh, given that they are discerning, the Australian voters, I think, on those who are in it for themselves. Okay. All right. So what what's next for you, John, with your, I suppose, with your podcast now that the um, you're not going to be in the Senate? I assume you, you, you declared your political career is finished, right? Well, I assume it is, yes. <laughs> what's up to I, you, I mate? No, no so plans you... at all. Are you no plans at all? No, no so, political plans. No, yeah, no political plans. So, what are you doing with your podcast? Are you still? You got these big guests on there. You, is that where your focus is now? Uh, I look. I'm a farmer, or more accurately, a farm labourer. My my son and daughter-in-law run the farm, and my wife and I try to be helpful, and I enjoy that very much. Um, but I still chair a couple of not-for-profits research organisations. I, I uh, I'm involved in a couple of interesting uh, agricultural ventures. Uh, and yeah, I, 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 I'm continuing to do the video podcasts. We've had some really interesting guests lately, Australians and uh, American and British. Um, uh, I, I do intend to try and keep that rolling and to branch out a bit more and perhaps to do a bit more writing. My themes at the moment would be, look, we are in cultural danger. We're dividing ourselves in the name of identity politics when we ought to be pulling together yes. uh, and the world is a dangerous place and we ought to be securing our, our um, uh, supply chains. I'm very conscious of that as a farmer. We need to be more self-reliant. We can't be totally self-reliant, but we need to be more reliant than we are now, uh, self-reliant. 
Uh, and we frankly need to harden our defences and we're being too slow. Now, I have the utmost respect for the Defence Minister and the Assistant Defence Minister. I mean that very sincerely. And the government's done a lot on defence, but there's a lot of legacy issues. Think submarines, but not only submarines. Okay, and so with your the guests that um, you've had on, I, I really liked your guy with the neo-feudalism. That was a fascinating discussion. I often can't tell whether you are agreeing with your guests or just being a good interviewer and and just exploring it with an open mind do you find yourself disagreeing or agreeing with a lot of your guests and are you letting on you don't seem to be letting us know what you think during those interviews people sometimes say that um i think over time people deduce where i stand on most issues uh look there are two reasons the first and most important is that overwhelmingly what I'm seeking to do is to allow people who I think have done very powerful thinking mm. to put that thinking before us uninterrupted and allow um, them to challenge us without me somehow doing what so many interviewers do, injecting their own bad news and ideas all the time uh, and often then forcing people to truncate what they really want to tell us. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to provide a conduit where people can really hear what good thinkers are thinking, and they can decide whether they agree with it or not. Um, the, the second thing is that sometimes ideas are put to me that I, I genuinely haven't formed a view on. Mm. I, I, I find it extraordinary that everybody seems, seems to think everybody must have a view on everything right now, and that view must be well-formed and well-thought-through. Very often my guests will say to me things that I really am uh, you know, surprised by, and I have to stop and think, I need to work that one through. That's a really interesting idea. What does it mean? Is it true? What does it mean? How does it play out? That's a good point. I'll take that on board. I was going to, maybe you've already answered this question. I was going to ask if you had any wisdom to offer a uh, someone who's trying to follow in your footsteps and have and, and be a good interviewer, a good host, trying to have these conversations. I don't think I can teach you anything, Matt. <laughs> uh, you bring... Uh, you bring great skills to it, and I, I wish you all the best, particularly in reaching your generation, because uh, you said, I think you said you were mid-30s. Uh, yes. I'd already been in the parliament three or four years when I was your age. I must, oh, good, okay, I must ask this. Our generation looks around and thinks this is unprecedented. How much of that is thought by every generation? Is it just, is it unprecedented what we're seeing right now, John, or is, yeah. did you think that when you were 35? Oh, I think there have been many times when things have happened that are unprecedented. Mind you, history always repeats itself. Well, it rhymes. It rhymes, more appropriately. So most of what you've seen, for example, the, the, the sort of polarisation into power blocks in the world, that's very 19th century. We've seen that before. Okay. Um, uh, but I guess the way in which a whole set of very difficult issues are confronting the whole of humanity is unprecedented. Right. Um, and that's challenging. We do know that a lot of young people particularly are very despondent uh, and even anxious. In fact, the data tells us that since we started recording these things, we're, we've reached the point now where we're at record levels of anxiety, depression and self-harm amongst young people. Uh, and someone recently said to me that it was all about climate change. But actually, when you dig into it, it's much more than that. Young people are worried about getting a good job, uh, flatlining wages if they do get a job, how do they afford assets, how do they get into the house, 
all of those sorts of things are concerning them deeply as well, which is another reason why we need to be careful and measured in responding to climate. Uh, if we do things that are unwise, and it is possible to do things that are unwise, will simply cost even more jobs uh, and opportunities for young people. Whereas if we get it right, we can turn these things into opportunities. So one of the great challenges is to not destroy people's hope. There have always been great challenges. Think what it must have been like for those young people at Oxford debating in 1933 or 34 as they looked at the storm clouds gathering again in Europe and they remembered the trenches. I mean, it would have been very hard to have avoided despair and a sense of hopelessness. Mm -hmm. um, so these... In one sense, yes, the events may be different. In another sense, uh, you know, the fact that we face challenges that we could easily be demoralised and overcome by, that's not new. Uh, you know, so we need the hope that spring's eternal, I think, uh, uh, and we need to encourage people, young people particularly, to keep a sense of optimism and a sense of challenge and excitement to cow and fear in the corner uh, will solve nothing. Uh, John, thank you. That's very wise. Uh, last question uh, with your guests. Have you ever found someone of the of the opposing view? You, know, you talk about the identity politics and so on. Have you ever found a good representation of the other side? Have you ever tried to steal men? The other side because i'm having great difficulty in even getting you know, a lot of for example just with the political a lot of alp pollies will vet me and and um love to come on but they they want to control it they want to have three minutes max they want to have editing ability and you know i don't do that i just put it out and so i find a lot of them are running scared and i'm trying to find someone of the other side on whatever issue to just come on and, and be bold. And I haven't found that yet. And I'm wondering if that's how they win by hiding and never engaging in the Socratic method, never challenging their ideas. Have you found anyone who puts up a reasonable defense of something you don't believe in? Um, I'd probably recast the question and say, are the old left-right labels use any use anymore? And I don't think they are. I think the divide now is between those who substitute feeling for thinking and thinking right. for feeling. Uh, what do I mean by that? Um, as one of my guests recently put it, Carl Truman, uh, what well, my summation of what he said was, we now are at a stage where we say, I feel, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. I feel I'm this person or I feel I identify as, therefore I am, rather than, um, you know, the old saying, I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. And so what you've got is the divide is more around those who want to pursue the evidence, right. the enlightenment approach of right. calm reason and those who want to go with their feelings. Right. And Jonathan Haidt and Greg, uh, 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 oh, I've got a mental block, I can't remember how he pronounces it now, lovely man, sure. I've interviewed him too. Um, uh, but they wrote the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Yeah, and in that, amongst other things, um, uh, they uh, they say that we often, with the best intentions in the world, tell our children, always trust your feelings. Mm. No. If your feelings do not align with the facts, you're getting into dangerous water. 
you can't rely on your feelings and you must not allow yourself to think that your feelings are you thinking or let me put it in a more simple way you mustn't think that thinking is or that feeling is thinking feeling is not thinking so you haven't found anyone who's mounted a strong argument for the feeling before thinking side of things no okay not not that i have personally found convincing no okay it's not to say that feelings aren't important it's just that they need to be informed by the facts okay head and heart need to be aligned John Anderson, it's been an honor to talk with you. Sorry, I can't remember if I was only allowed to have you for an hour. I've had you for an hour and 15. Thank you so much for spending the time. I am, uh, as much as you're not perhaps taking the praise, I am very much following in your footsteps. I love what you're doing with your channel, and I hope to be an interviewer like you are with your guests, uh, to be well-read and to listen and ask good questions. And thank you for being on this show. And I look forward to your what what you who are you going to interview next yonmin park that was incredible yeah amazing story very gutsy lady and and humbling to encounter someone who's been through what she's been through but matt i've enjoyed it very much i wish you all the very best uh, and uh, uh, all i can say to you and your generation is step up for your own sakes and when you have children for their sakes as well there's some wisdom for you everyone step up for your sakes and for our children's sakes all right thank you john anderson thank you